0: Safety FM, changing safety cultures, one broadcast and one podcast at a time. Welcome to Safety FM, where we talk about safety that's truly inspired by you. Hello and welcome to Safety FM. This episode of the broadcast and the podcast has been brought to you by Safety Focus Moment. They are consultants that want to help you get to the safety culture that you've been looking for. For more information, go to safetyfocusmoment.com. Well, hello and welcome to Safety FM. This is Jay Allen. You know, I was actually starting off, had something else entirely planned that I was going to say when I first started this. But I thought it was interesting because it's pretty amazing when you start looking around on when people are getting ready for their podcast or their broadcast. And they start listening to music to get them all, I guess, amped up before they actually start. And then it's just amazing on how all the music goes down and then they play their bed music. That's what they refer to in the industry in regards of the music that's playing underneath on how I'm speaking right now. So I just think it's funny on how there's a total change of music on what's amping them up to what's going on. Anyways, don't want to bore you too much with that kind of information, but I just thought it was interesting on how that actually does happen before most broadcasts and podcasts do occur. So today we're going to do something a little bit different. Recently, we have moved from our hosting platform that we were using in the past, and we are now being hosted by a company called Megaphone, Megaphone. which is a panoply company. So we're pretty excited about being on Megaphone, being hosted by Megaphone. It's exciting times for us here at Safety FM. So you'll see a little bit of changes in the programming going forward. So I just want to forewarn you on that. The other thing is that we've being that we change hosting services. What's going to end up taking place is I don't believe that we'll lose any episodes in the transition, but just in case if we did what I'm going to do here on the episode today is something we haven't done yet. And what we're going to do is something a little bit different. What I'm going to do is I'm going to take some of the people that I have interviewed up to this point and we're going to edit them together where you can take a listen to that podcast. So it's going to be kind of a little bit of some excerpts of some of the people that I've interviewed, some of the information that they discussed on the podcast. So just in case if an episode or two gets lost in the shuffle, you'll kind of hear the what has been done in the past. I'm pretty sure that all the episodes are going to come across, but in case they don't, I just want to be able to give you some examples of what we've already done in the past. So enjoy the broadcast or the podcast about the podcast and the broadcast that we've already had what we're doing now in case you haven't heard them i know that becomes very confusing anyways enjoy it here now on safety fm or safety fm.com safety fm So, Dr. Coughlin, I appreciate you actually coming on to Safety FM. No problem at all, man. What a treat. So then at that particular point, when do you determine to have the conversation with people that we are doing safety wrong as an industry? And how are you able to verbalize this?
1: Well, so it's it's really kind of a there's a journey to this conversation because at first I didn't think we were doing safety wrong because, uh, I mean, there was really only one way to do safety. And that was you told people to get safer and then you told them over and over and over again to get safer and then you built systems where you could observe them and tell them to get safer and then you you got behavioral based safety programs where you had peers tell them to be safer and at the time you know my belief was the problem was that the workers needed to be safer and what this new view the safety differently view did was kind of forced me to look at things beyond the workers in fact. It was the moment where I realized that the worker's not the problem to be fixed. The worker's the solution. If you treat the worker as a problem, then you're gonna constantly be frustrated with workers. But if you treat the workers as a solution, what you start to see is improvement right away. And it's a really interesting, if if you look at the journey that most organizations take, the journey kind of starts with the realization that human error is normal and for a while that becomes really super attractive that you look at how people make mistakes and you think "Well, what we need to do is mistake proof the organization we need to make sure people don't make mistakes so we'll put in a lot of systems in there to create mistake free we'll mistake proof the system we'll we'll idiot proof this process we'll make it so that they never make mistakes but then after a while you realize huh mistakes are just normal but mistakes aren't bad or good they're just part of the normal fabric of being a human being, people are fallible and they make lots of mistakes. And good performers probably make more mistakes than bad performers, because good performers have more opportunities to screw up. And so then once you sort of get over the mistake thing, then you start thinking about the blame thing. And the blame thing, in my mind, is kind of the big, that's thats the one. It, it, it's the realization somehow that blaming doesn't fix anything. And once people understand that, oh, when I blame a guy for screwing up, when I blame a guy for cutting his hand, I've emotionally met my needs to sort of determine who is at fault, but I haven't actually done anything to fix the thing that cut the guy's hand. So you have to kind of look at error, and then you look at blame. And once you look at error and look at blame, then the old systems the systems that we've used historically that have actually carried quite a bit of water for us those systems aren't very effective and then the final thing is this quite amazing realization that there's a limit to compliance and this is kind of a big deal but there is a limit to compliance you're in a position and the people who listen to you are probably definitely in this position where more rules do not create more safety in in fact for the most part, rules as a foundation are pretty good because they set expectations. But rules themselves are not control. They don't actually manage behavior. Rules are expectations for what we want. And lots of times there's a misalignment between the expectation of what we want and the system in which we put the worker to do the work. That was a pretty long answer but yeah, it is like an you, extra that's an extra credit answer
0: <laughs> absolutely but you have a lot of information inside of there and I think that that is sometimes our misconceptions it's okay, all of a sudden now somebody injured their hand, but we did absolutely nothing to correct the problem. And I've been, and I'm involved mostly in the transportation industry, and I'm amazed watching on how we have different organizations that will terminate a, a vehicle operator, opposed to trying to coach and correct the issue that might have caused an accident to occur. So listening to you say even that- Even more importantly, even more importantly to learn from it. So the coaching corrections
1: good, that's great, right? That's, that's good because we can coach the worker, be more careful, we can correct the system, make it harder to back into something. But the bottom line is that primarily at the foundational level, what we have to do is create an opportunity to learn. And the problem with blame is that blame is the opposite of learning. So when we go to blame, we have sort of the emotional payoff. It, it, it actually gives us our confirmation. It, it tells us, okay, we fixed the problem. But in fact, we haven't fixed anything. We fixed blame, we haven't fixed the worker. And blame, just, it, blame doesn't make a system better. I mean, it, it just doesn't. If you lose your car keys, you can blame yourself all day long for losing your car keys. But I'll bet you a nickel at some point you go to the car dealer and, and you get another key. That's actually a solution, you know, and it has nothing to do with blame. It has everything to do with fixing the problem. <laughs>
0: Well, Dr. Geller, first of all, I would like to thank you for coming on to Safety FM. It is a true honor and a true privilege to have you on. Oh, yeah, my pleasure.
2: Yes, it's yeah, so- that's when it all started, yeah.
0: <laughs> so, But it, 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 it is funny that you mentioned that because when you listen to people that believe in Hop in particular, they tried to say that behavior based safety references that it's the employees' fault. So
2: yes, and you know well yeah, Jay, that's that's just so wrong. We never said that. But that is their way of selling Top. And, and by the way, the two go hand in hand. My biggest concern about HOP is they want to get surveys. They want to use surveys. And they want to, I understand, trying to understand the system. Ask employees where the next injury will occur. And you can learn a lot from what they say on a survey. Nothing wrong with that. But when you watch their behavior, you're seeing right there. We don't have to worry about recall or memory. We look right there. What are people doing? And we never... We never blame people. It's about understanding the causes of behavior. But like I said earlier, sometimes the consultants took this and simplified it. One consultant, and I saw him do this, he would show the dumb things that people would do to get injured. And then he would make the statement, 95% or more of all the injuries are caused by workers' behavior. And that, that just... Got the unions very upset. The uh, UAW is interesting. The UAW came down strong against behavior-based safety in the late 80s. But as I said earlier, it really started with Ford Motor Company and the UAW. So when presented correctly, we try to study. We study behavior in order to understand the system and find out how to improve behavior. Period. But again, it was misinterpreted because people didn't have the background in psychology. My first book was in safety was 1996, and it was called The Psychology of Safety, and it said much more than measuring behavior. It talked about the human dynamics of safety, which includes behavior, of course, but it also includes our attitude, it, it includes our cognitions, and a number of other aspects of people clearly influences injuries and fatalities in the workplace and elsewhere.
0: And I have to tell you, here's the interesting part. I was one of those big believers, and when I started listening about HOP and about behavior-based safety on how they could not coincide together, or they could not kind of see eye-to-eye or even be, interact with them, when I went to your website, safetyperformance.com, of course, your company, Safety Performance. Solutions. I was impressed. Yes. I was impressed to see that there is a reference about hop on there. And it is absolutely, and there's a line right next to me here at Bay Safety. And I was like, okay, maybe I'm reading this wrong. Maybe I went to the wrong website, but no, I was impressed just to see that there's a line in there that references it. And I'll tell you from the, from being at the ASSP last week, um, last week in San Antonio, and just hearing the interaction between you and Todd Coughlin, it seems like there's, there's a lot of point of views that you guys are starting to see a little bit eye to eye on. So would you consider this the new point of view on
2: safety as people like to reference to it? Well, you know, let's understand first, consultants love to come up with something new. You know, they reinvent the wheel. I've seen it, listen, I've been in this psychology field for over 50 years. I've been a professor at Virginia Tech. I'm going into my 50th year next semester. So I've seen it and I've worked with consultants all that time. They love to come up with their own little label. You know, you'll notice that consultants very rarely reference the research or the scholarship of others. You know, it's, it's like their idea and you know, That's just the way it is, and consultants, by the way, don't have a continuous learning process. They Whatever they left school with, that's their knowledge, and they go out and they consult with that. I'm proud to say that my partners at Safety Performance Solutions, we've been, they've been connected to this university ever since. In fact, three of them are my former students. And we have adjunct consultants with our company that were also students of mine. They got their PhD with me. But more importantly, we continue to communicate about the research in psychology and they adjust their presentations and their workshops are- accordingly. So it's continuous improvement. It's continuous learning. And it does disappoint me that that consultants, quite frankly, they don't read the work of others. They don't reference the work of others. They think they have this new idea, they go out. And I'm not picking on any particular consultant. I'm talking about in general terms. But I must say that, you know, you mentioned Todd Conklin. I mean he really means well but he doesn't know the psychology of safety so he doesn't really see the connections listen we're in all in this together and there we can learn from each other we need to work together and appreciate the knowledge that each has in this field of occupational safety and health well, what you bringing that up,
0: I, let me just ask you a strange question here. When you started to get involved with behavior based safety and really going behind the Ford Motor Company, what did you yeah. believe that was your driving force behind safety? So who was your influence? What research did you do at that time?
2: Well, it was B.F. Skinner. You know, I was I was I was an advocate of behavior. I mean, let's not talk about attitudes. Think safety. That was a common a common sign. Think safety. Safety and and people would leave you have to you have to change people's attitude before you can change their behavior this was this was common this was commonly said and people still say that some of the pop psychologists say if you want to change behavior you have to change attitude first or you know what else they say they say you can only change your own behavior you can't change the behavior of others which is so wrong one of the popular fields in psychology is behavior therapy and that's all about changing other people people's behavior.
0: Good afternoon, Dr. Ludwig, and I appreciate you actually showing up here onto Safety FM. How are you today? I'm doing well, Jay. Thanks for having me. Talking about that, I know that behavior-based safety is a very strong suit We're talking to Dr. Geller, and there has been a lot of conversation in regards lately of human organizational performance. What do you feel the differences between the two, and can you consider one better than the other?
3: Yeah, it's a great question. You know, it's been disconcerting in the last couple of years as HOP, uh, Human Organizational Performance, has uh, has gained uh, relevance and, uh, and, um, and practice. Uh, you know, Behavior-Based h is based on our science, behavioral science. I'm a psychologist. Dr. Geller is a psychologist. Uh, those of us who created it are from an uh, area of psychology called Behavior Analysis. And as we just discussed, uh, we had uh, decades of uh, research, uh, lab research, what we call efficacy research out in the field with certain companies like Ford Motor Company, these pizza companies and the like, you know, uh, designing the basis of what became the market for uh, behavior-based safety. Um, And it had a a really strong beginning, a good run. Anything that lasts for decades is certainly a, a product we have. We have evidence of its success that we published uh, over the years in my research, Dr. Geller's research, uh, Dominic Cooper's research, Terry McSleen, et cetera, et cetera. I got a, I got a list of about 100, uh, 100 uh, different uh, research um, papers uh, on the topic. Uh, and then over the years, as anything happens, uh, it, uh, people uh, think it's a fairly simple process, and so they just start marketing it on themselves. And because folks who really didn't understand the science got involved, um, you know, it started getting watered down, and then there was some bad implementation. And with that, uh, obviously, uh, the um, the the market grew, and then uh, it became, um, you know, in, in a good critical sense. Uh, you know, question whether or not it's effective. So as a number of uh, folks started writing whether or not uh, BBS was effective or snake oil, (laughs) that kind of thing. And of course, they're citing the programs that don't work. And, you know, from from a basis of science and practice, you know, we want to go out and learn what works and what doesn't work. I work with a nonprofit called the Cambridge Center for Behavioral Studies. And for the last decade, we've been accrediting the best in practice behavioral safety programs in the entire world. And so we have a we have a list of best practices of things that work and uh, things that tend not to work. And so when you start seeing programs that don't work, they're very easily lined up with some of the management practices and some of the design features that um, that are associated with the ones that don't work. So uh, because of this uh, watering down of the of the um, process, the uh, you know people start questioning behavior-based safety. And at the same time, uh, there's been some really good work, and I. I I think it comes out of a lot of the work in process safety as well, where we're trying to keep major incidents from happening like explosions or fatalities. Um, you know, the off-sited data, as we've been getting better and better with uh, personal safety through processes like uh, BBS and other things, uh, we haven't really chipped down uh, the number of fatalities that happen every year, and certainly other process safety issues have been in the forefront with the Deepwater Horizon. and. Uh, and other explosions and, and releases uh, in the chemical industry and, and falls and, and crane falls and stuff like that in the construction industry. So um, as as we move forward, a number of uh, really uh, uh, some folks who, coming from more of an engineering background, started seeing some of the systemic uh, factors that go into uh, the causes of these, these incidents, especially the unplanned incidents. Uh, that uh, kind of come out of nowhere and are pretty large. And they built a nice repertoire of different things to look at in an an organization system like their management systems, their planning, uh, the equipment facilities and the like, um, which which offer a really good analysis of when incidents happen and uh, an an excellent uh, process to try to predict where incidents may take place and mitigate those beforehand. What's been disconcerting over the last couple of years is where it, the BBS and HOP have been kind of squared off against each other. Uh, in ASSE 2017, uh, Scott was in a debate where um, you know that was that was kind of the the market for the debate. They had this big this argument and this one versus the other, uh, and it's disconcerting because uh, those of us from the uh, the science uh, see that the behaviors when you're when you're uh, doing a BBS program and it's being done right, you are identifying uh, at-risk behavior, sources of behavioral variance uh, as people do their tasks, uh, and. From uh, the behavioral perspective, as I try to describe in my book, we don't go blame the worker after. We recognize that the um, the greatest percentage or the reason why people behave the way they do, is caused by the system, the context that they're in. And so you know when we when we have these at-risk behaviors identified in a BBS program, we look to system variables that put the worker in the position to take the play to take that risk to begin with. right? So instead of blaming the worker, we try to use the information that we've gleaned from the behavioral observations to identify the system variables, you know, the training, uh, the planning that went into it, uh, the processes that's laid out in the SOP, the equipment, tools, facilities that they're working in, supervision, you know, all those system variables that, that folks in HOP have done so good at delineating, right? So for, for those of us who, who have been doing this for a number of years, we see HOP and BBS as complementing each other in very strong ways uh, as opposed to being opposing methods
0: first off welcome to the show i do appreciate you taking the time today to cover information about safety with us here on safety fm
4: well thank you jay it's uh glad to have the opportunity
0: well and that brings up an excellent question so what do you think now with I guess the highest rank executive of a company can be held personally liable for the safety of his employees or her employees within the company. How do you feel about that change?
4: I think that it's um, just like any other aspect of the business. They're held accountable for the finances. They're held accountable for the quality. They're held accountable, accountable for their customer satisfaction. They're held accountable to the stockholders for performance on the street. So my view is why not be held accountable for safety, which is another part of their business. Again, this is a classic case, just another example of the idea that we as safety professionals are responsible for safety. Um, I've got a big, I've got a personal opinion of that, is it? no, we're not responsible for safety. We are there to assist management, we're there to assist leadership in being able to do the best job that they can in running the business, and one key component of the business is safety. And learned a lesson a long time ago from my grandfather, and I call it the lesson of the milking stool. He had an old three leg, well worn milking stool, and when we took it out to the barn to milk the cow, he taught me a great lesson. He said, Son, look at the legs of this stool. What do you notice about it? Well, we got three, Grandpa. He said, That's right. What else do you notice? Well, they're all the same length. He said, that's right, too. He said, you can kind of survive by rocking back on two of them, but it's best if all three are left on the ground. And you get your best results with all three of them being equal length on the ground and solidly rooted. So I developed a philosophy that uh, safety is just kind of like my grandpa's old milk and stool. The three legs are number one compliance you know, of a I graduated before OSHA, been through OSHA, and OSHA has done a tremendous amount of good in our society and our country over the years. But. It is a minimum standard, it is minimum regulations, but we will never, ever, ever get away from the compliance and a regulatory piece of it. So that safety and health professionals, let's just deal with it. Let's get that done and get behind us because we find that the those who have a excellent or leading safety record or performance or do very, very well at the other two aspects in addition to compliance. And the first of those aspects is the business. And we as safety professionals need to understand and have this thing called business acumen. Yeah, we've got to understand the regulations, but we've got to understand how those regulations work in and through the business. And bottom line, if we're not there to make money or we're not doing the things that we need to do to keep us in business. There are no jobs for us as safety professionals. And I think that this is our greatest challenge in being able to reach out and being able to understand what uh, the business acumen and the language of business. And as I talk to young students uh, in getting their degrees in safety, Inevitably, I'll get a question as to is a master's degree worthwhile, and I'll tell him, yes, it is, but that master's degree needs to come from up on the hill. And I strongly recommend a master's in business administration because you're now going to deal in an area of strategy rather than your safety area in functionality, which will give you powerful tools when you get out and have to deal with those people who are running the business.
0: Well, there you go. That was a small sampling of what you might have missed so far on Safety FM. If you're interested in full episodes that you just heard little portions of, you can go into our archives at safetyfm.com or at your favorite podcatcher. Once again, I just want to tell everybody thank you for everything that you guys do. Thanks for continuously hitting that subscribe button and also leaving your review at whatever podcast catcher that you're actually using. And like always, you can always find us on social media at Facebook at Safety FM, at Twitter at Safety FM, at LinkedIn at Safety FM. You kind of get the drill on how that actually worked. And just in case if you're interested in advertising here on Safety FM, please go to safetyfm.com and just click on that advertising button and we'll kind of get you set up on what you need to do. Thank you for listening to Safety FM and until next time, be safe. No part of this podcast may be reproduced, stored in a retrieval system or transmitted in any form or by any means, mechanical, electronic, recording or otherwise, without prior written permission of the creator of the podcast, Jay
2: Allen. Join the
0: fun fun on social media and find us on Facebook at Safety FM.